Here's the problem. All, almost everybody that was wrong about the war, that played a key role in starting the war in Iraq, was not held accountable. And to mm. this day, still occupy key positions in our media, in our policymaking bodies, and in our foreign policy institutions. Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO of American Moment, and I'm joined by nobody. Uh, Sarab is gone uh, on a work trip, and so this week uh, you're stuck with me. But we have a very interesting guest this week, uh, so you will get to hear from him as well. Uh, so this week I'm joined by Dan Caldwell, uh, and he is currently the vice president for foreign policy at Stand Together and a senior advisor to Concerned Veterans for America. In these roles, Dan has led issue campaigns to reform the Department of Veterans Affairs and to end the American war in Afghanistan. Dan enlisted in the Marines in 2005 as an infantryman. During basic training, Dan was selected for the Marine Corps Presidential Support Program, in which he served as a member of the Marine Security Force at Marine Barracks, Washington, and the Presidential Retreat at Camp David. Upon completion of his tour at Camp David, Dan was assigned to 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, where he served as an infantry team leader, squad leader, and vehicle commander. Dan deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, Dan graduated from Arizona State University with degrees in political science and Asian history, and he lives in Virginia with his two daughters. We had a very interesting conversation uh, today from... I mean, everything ranging from his background, his time at Camp David, to uh, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, um, how the media basically lied their way into promotions. Um, we talked about uh, the new rights foreign policy, uh, TR's foreign policy. Uh, Dan had some not so nice things to say about TR, so you should definitely uh, Stick around for that. And we also talked about uh, Russia and Ukraine, which I'm sure is on everybody's mind. So enough of me talking. Uh, we will go now to Dan Caldwell. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Thank you for having me. So uh, as Moment of Truth's number one fan, uh, I know you've listened. I know you know how the show goes. But um, the first question we want to ask you is, how did you get where you are now? And, and tell us a little more about your background. Well, I, I took an Uber to get here. Um, <laughs> we are currently in the Conservative Partnership Institute building. And it took oh, about you a, didn't have to dox us like that. <laughs> I took a, I took a 25 minute uh, Uber to get here. So it yeah. was it was an OK experience. I'd give it a four and a half star. Yeah, you had to wear right. a mask. It was yeah. it was tough. Um, But, you know, in, in all seriousness, um, it's funny. You know, you mentioned how I'm you know, I mentioned how I'm a fan of the show and um. I was listening to a Blake Masters uh, episode and like him, he grew up in Arizona and how he kind of described um, his upbringing and kind of this libertarian infused conservatism that really is popular in Arizona being the home of, of Barry Goldwater. I think growing up there and having kind of that background, both, you know, culturally within Arizona and then my family, um, that really played a big role in shaping you know, what I believe today and, and kind of the direction I've taken in life. So I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix. Um, 
I uh, went to a Jesuit uh, prep school, which was an interesting experience because they were big proponents of liberation theology, which Mm -hmm. is, I think probably your listeners know what that is, but it's the best way I can describe it is kind of a Marxist infused uh, Catholicism. And I actually appreciated the fact that I went to that school because it really challenged my beliefs and helped kind of reaffirm a lot of the things that I believe today. But it was a really intense uh, experience. And so after I graduated from high school, I went to college for a grand total of, I think, six weeks. And I I just realized I can't be in school right now. Mm. So I had a good friend that was in the army and he had deployed to Iraq towards the end of 2005. I was talking to him and he was telling me about his experiences over there. I had always wanted to join the military. And so I dropped out of college and I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps and I enlisted as an infantryman or I think they call them infantry people now. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But uh, back then it was infantryman. Uh, And um, in boot camp, I was recruited for something called the Yankee White Program, which is the Marine Corps Presidential Support Program. So from my first two years in the Marine Corps, I uh, spent uh, most of that time at the President's Retreat at Camp David as part of the security force up there. And it was a fantastic experience. Great Marines, great training. Um, a lot of the people I served with up there, I'm still in touch with. And uh, it was a great, you know, first two years in the Marine Corps. And this was in the middle of the Iraq war. At the time, the commandant wanted to make sure rightly that Marines were deploying overseas, that people weren't dodging the fleet or dodging the war, so to say. So I went to a um, infantry battalion out of Camp Pendleton, California, uh, where I think you've spent some time. Your dad yeah, was, was a Marine. Yeah, I was is a Marine. I'm Still always is. Yeah, there you go. Um, but no, yeah, I was born in, in Oceanside. So. Right. So I was with 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. I did a work up there and I deployed to Iraq for about eight months towards the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And I was there in an interesting time of the war. It was when the status of forces agreement was coming to effect. And at the time, we thought the United States' war in Iraq was ending and that we would be gone in the next couple of years. But obviously, history had different plans and the United States remains in Iraq to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of your experience um, in Iraq and some of the some of the first signs that you that you noticed um, that the images we were seeing on TV and 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 the things that people were saying at the time were not an accurate reflection of what was going on on the ground. Can you walk us through kind of your experience and when you started to have some of the ideas that you have now about foreign policy? Yeah. So, in all honesty, when I served in Iraq, you could spend time there and look around and say, okay, this actually might work out for the better because it was at the tail end of the surge and the United States had drastically lowered expectations for what it wanted to accomplish in Iraq. There was a term that was being used a lot called Iraq good enough, meaning that we had recognized at this point that Iraq was not going to become a Jeffersonian democracy. Was this like an official term? Or it was just something that you guys like threw around. um, You know, a lot of the counterinsurgency uh, proponents started to use that. I don't I don't know if it ever appeared in any official documents, but you started to see that a lot in Iraq and then in a lot of uh, kind of some of the 
the commentary around the war that started to appear. Mm-hmm. And so it, the the kind of the the idealistic um rhetoric that had accompanied the march to war to Iraq and then that had been present in the first few years of the war was pretty much gone. And at this point it was kind of like we need to stop the bleeding and stabilize the country and try and salvage something out of this mess. And in a lot of ways, the the surge did stop the bleeding. Um, and so coming in at the tail end of the surge, you it was still a violent place. There was still active combat, but it was not like what you saw in 2003, 2004, 2005 and six where there were major battles like in Fallujah or Ramadi mm-hmm. or the Western Euphrates River Valley, it it was um, mostly smaller groups of insurgents making hit and run attacks. The Iraqi security forces were somewhat competent and were able to do a lot of things on their own at this point. And so it, it was very easy to feel like this could work, but there was a lot of things going on below the surface that were easy to miss. And I think there's a lot of things that the media really wasn't emphasizing for why it was so peaceful. And really, one of the biggest reasons is, is because we were essentially paying off the Sunni insurgents. Mm. We had recruited them into what was called the Sons of Iraq. And, you know, around the time of the Afghanistan withdrawal, I heard a lot of discussion around, well, it's like, what is it like for these Marines and paratroopers at Kabul International Airport to have to work and talk to people that they used to fight in the Taliban? And I I just thought like, well, I, I think some of them had probably experienced that before in Iraq because a lot of the police and the the militias we were working with three or four years before were fighting us in places like Fallujah and Ramadi. Mm-hmm. And so Essentially, we bought out the insurgency. And yeah, the the um, the large infusion of American troops did help improve the security situation in the short term, but we didn't solve the fundamental problems that had been created by our overthrow of the Saddam regime. Mm-hmm. And so that's why five years after I left Iraq, Every place I served, with the exception of Al-Assad Air Base, was under the control of ISIS because essentially uh, the the sectarian divide, the political uh, um, divides, the vast corruption um, and the instability caused by the removal of Saddam Hussein, that was not solved by are doubling down with a surge strategy. We were just papering over problems. Mm -hmm. So really for me, it was seeing everything fall apart five years later. And then in between learning about how we got into the war in Iraq, there really was a wake up call for me about how the Iraq war was just a a disaster. And really everything we've been doing since we pulled down the the statue of Saddam Hussein, believe 19 years ago this week, or yeah, 19 years ago this week, Um, has really just been trying to mitigate the damage from our foolish decision to invade that country and overthrow its government. Yeah, so let's go a little deeper into that. Let's yeah. give some of our listeners a, a, a history lesson and and talk about how we got into the war in Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, yeah. getting to this, you know, Iraq good enough. Uh, that's I've never heard that before. That's just kind of like blowing my mind right now. 
Um, and then to paid ins- insurgents to to ISIS. Can you just give us an attenuated timeline of that? Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of people like to start with 9-11 when talking mm-hmm. about the march to a war in Iraq, but you really have to go back further. You have to go back to the late 90s when you had um, a group of neoconservatives come together and found the Project for New American Century, uh, PNAC. And part of the reason for them coming together was to advocate for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And also, too, uh, the Clinton administration made it official United States policy that we were going to create the conditions to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And also, as well, it's important to remember that during the 90s, we were pretty much bombing Iraq on a regular basis um, towards the end of the decade on almost a daily basis. And um, we had the country under absolutely crippling sanctions, which deeply impoverished their people. Um, it, It definitely led to higher rates of infant mortality. Now, some of the numbers out there, like 500,000, I I don't think are accurate. I think they were exaggerated by the Saddam regime, but we, we inflicted incredible suffering on the Iraqi people, all in service of trying to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And it all kind of went back to this theory that people on both the right, uh, the right, mainly neoconservatives, but also liberal internationalists and liberal interventionists had that if we overthrew Saddam and created a liberal democracy in Iraq, that that would essentially serve as a springboard for liberalism into the rest of the Middle East. And so you have a lot of people on the left saying it was about oil or or it was about American imperialism. There, There are maybe some elements of truth to that, but ultimately the driving force behind the invasion of Iraq comes back to that theory that if you created a liberal democracy in Iraq, that it would that that liberalism would spread across the Middle East. So fast forward to to 9-11, that created more momentum for those uh, who wanted to overthrow Saddam Hussein, particularly within the Bush administration. You had a group of people primarily centered in the vice president's office, uh, Dick Cheney, and then at the Pentagon, who had been advocating for Saddam's overthrow for over a decade at this point. And they came together and they created the conditions inside the government, but also outside the government by working with the media uh, to essentially um, ensure that the United States would invade Iraq about 18 months after 9-11. And they created a lot of false narratives about Iraq, that it was... Uh, allied with al-Qaeda and played a a role in 9-11, that it had a weapons of mass destruction program that posed a threat to the United States. They would do things like leak raw and in some cases discredited intelligence to the media. And then the media would report it. And then people like Vice President Cheney would then appear on other media programs and say, hey, look what the New York Times just reported. They Mm -hmm. reported that uh, Iraq is very close to a nuclear bomb, even though that they had leaked that to New York Times and were touting it like the New York Times somehow verified this on their own. And you had a lot of opinion writers that worked to discredit anybody that was uh, questioning the march to war. You had the famous uh, editorial or excuse me, op-ed by David Frum in the National Review that, ca- that called uh, conservatives opposing the war unpatriotic. He still it- does that like 
every right. couple months, right? Called this guy right here, Pat Buchanan. He yeah. he he focused in on on him uh, quite a bit, and they 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 smeared anybody that that had the bravery, and it really was bravery, to say that uh, this is not in the United States' interest, that this isn't going to make us safer, and will be a disaster. And all mm-hmm. those people that that stood firm were proven right by history. But here's the problem. Almost everybody that was wrong about the war, that played a key role in starting the war in Iraq, was not held accountable. And to Mm. this day, still occupy key positions in our media, in our policymaking bodies, and in our foreign policy institutions. Yeah. So how did... I'm glad you brought up the the media point, because I think it's a very important aspect of this and you know we actually did a whole panel on this at at up from chaos which was our um foreign policy conference we did about two weeks ago now but um how did how did you know the the this war and and all the other wars we've been involved in um accelerate the careers uh specifically of members of the media and and how the fact that after being so wrong they don't have egg on their face. They're getting promotions. Right. They're getting book contracts. Yeah. I mean, it all comes back down to that concept of accountability is that there's no accountability for being wrong. I mean, you have reporters right now. I mean, let's let's put aside Iraq for a second. Let's let's look at what's happened with Russiagate. You have reporters who have been promoted within the last six months that during the Trump administration, they were literally wrong about everything regarding the Steele dossier, Russia collusion, Russian bounties, the Hunter Biden disinformation laptop thing. All Every single piece of their reporting has been discredited, but they still occupy important positions uh, as international White House uh correspondence at places like CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post, Molly Hemingway, Glenn Greenwald have done tremendous work on that particular issue. I encourage you to look at their work. But I bring that up because that just is an example of of how there's there's been almost, you know, no accountability on a multitude of issues uh, in foreign policy, not just the Iraq war. But I think that with Iraq in particular, I think that as it became apparent that it was a disaster, I think that either consciously or subconsciously, a lot of people in the media um, felt the need to circle the wagons and defend themselves. And so there was kind of this unspoken or maybe in some quiet you know, corners of conferences, a, a, a spoken agreement that we weren't going to hold ourselves uh, accountable for this. We weren't going to, for example, never give Jeffrey Goldberg uh, control of an important publication again. Mm. But nonetheless, he is still the leader of one of the most prominent publications, the Atlantic uh, in the country. Um, There was, you know, not a, a, a agreement that hey, like we shouldn't give somebody like Brett Stevens uh, a regular column in a, a, a publication like Wall Street Journal or, or New York Times, um, and so it it it, it kind of was this uh, self protection, this protection racket that occurred. I want to be clear on something. Um, I do think that 
there are a newer generation of reporters, younger reporters, some that worked through the Iraq war that did learn the lessons there. I don't like to cast uh, a wide net in terms of blame or to, to shove people into a group unfairly. I do have to say that that at publications, including the New York Times and Washington Post, some of the ones I called out, even at places like CNN, I think there are reporters that are striving to cover foreign policy better. And I think they look at uh, people like Neil Sheehan during the Vietnam War, uh, David Halberstram, they look at those people as their models, as mm-hmm. opposed to um, a lot of the the foreign policy correspondents that didn't challenge the narrative around the Iraq War. And I think that they 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 don't want to be like them. But there's a lot of pressure to uh, toe the party line of the foreign policy establishment, and they have to resist it sometimes. Yeah, I think you've hit on an interesting point, too, in that, you know, starting with the Vietnam War, especially uh, the fact that, you know, television made the war so much more accessible, right? Like people were were watching it on nightly television. And that is that is, I think, part of what drove, um, you know, such resentment toward the war. Moving forward to today, you know, where you can watch um, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine yep. on Twitter. You can you uh-huh. can see videos um of this. Um or the I actually want to move to Afghanistan next. So right. so you know the 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 pullout of Afghanistan, the fact that people could were watching this on social media as well as TV. Um I in the same way that you talked about the Iraq war and some of the strategic, you know, failures and and kind of the policy blunders there. I want you to give the same treatment to Afghanistan. I think a lot of Americans and again, maybe some of our listeners don't really understand the differences between the two, mm-hmm. the differences uh, in the motivations that that drove us right. to both of those and, and some of the different failures that we had. So let's let's start there and then we'll move to discussing the, the pullout. Yeah. So there is a difference between the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan for me. And I think that with Afghanistan, we were justified in going in and invading in the first place. We were attacked um, by people that had uh, trained in Afghanistan, uh, by a group that had its headquarters in Afghanistan. And there was a threat posed by individuals in Afghanistan to our safety. Um, We had to go in and, and do three things. We had to punish the Taliban for hosting al-Qaeda, we had to send a message that it is not okay for any country or quasi-country in the case of of Afghanistan at the time because the Taliban didn't control the entire country at that point and they weren't a widely recognized government, um, that it's not appropriate. It's, well, that's kind of putting it very lightly. It's, yeah. it's, it is not in your interest and your continued well-being to host um, terrorists that aim to do harm to the United States. Uh, so we had to, to punish them and send that message to to other governments that that will not be tolerated. We had to decrate, degrade Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda did pose a threat to the United States. Clearly, the, the events of 9-11 showed that. And we also had to kill Osama bin Laden. Uh, that guy had to die. It's a good thing he was shot in the face. I know there's debate over who shot him in the face. There's you know a bunch of Navy SEALs arguing about who actually did it. 
that that could consume a whole episode about Navy SEAL culture, but we won't get into that. <laughs> uh, but at, at the end of the day, we had accomplished those three things. And um, by, you know, 2011, we had accomplished that. And we had accomplished the, the, the two bigger goals of degrading Al-Qaeda and punishing the Taliban in the first few years of the war. But what happened is, is that we turned Afghanistan into a nation building project. And this occurred very early on. The goal, similar to Iraq, became to try and turn Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian liberal democracy, even though their culture for thousands of years had violently resisted attempts to impose any type of foreign system on them. And that, frankly, it wasn't in the United States's interest and not necessary for our safety for Afghanistan to be a liberal democracy. So the initial invasion was justified, but the nation building project that came after it was not necessary and just became an utter disaster for the United States and also too for the Afghan people as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the important things to talk about here that there is not a lot of nuance about is there, there have been a lot of, 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 columnists of opinion havers of people on twitter who have who have you know kind of slammed the 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 right um this you know more restrained faction of the right uh for the pullout in afghanistan um you know it was it was biden's action but basically saying that oh see realist conservatives when you when when this is when you agitate for this this is what happens so I want to talk about the 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 pullout. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how pulling out of Afghanistan is good was a good idea in principle, um, but more about how it was executed yeah. very poorly by the Biden administration and what could have been done differently. So speaking of the first thing you said, there are people that are trying to make it seem like the problem with the war in Afghanistan was the last 20 days mm-hmm. and not the whole 20 years. And they're doing that to escape personal accountability for their own failures mm-hmm. in many cases. So when you when you see people like David Petraeus and H.R. McMaster and, you know, Leon Panetta and others coming out and 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 talking about the last 20 days and focusing so much on that, they're doing that because they're frankly trying to cover their own. <laughs> and they're trying to distract away from the fact that they, more than anybody else, are responsible for the war in Afghanistan going wrong. Mm. Um, that's that. That's what that's all about. It. I'm sorry. It's just it's it's a it's a disingenuous, dishonest attempt by a uh, group of former generals, former State Department officials, and people in the, in the opinion press mm. to. Uh, you know, hide the fact that they are the ones that failed for 20 years. You don't and, have to be sorry. You have to remember yeah. our show is literally called Moment of Truth. Yes. You just yeah. delivered a moment of yeah. truth right there. But I but but circling back to the pullout itself, look, the decision to get out of Afghanistan was the right one. And I applaud President Trump for getting the ball rolling and for resisting a lot of pressure within his own administration to um not withdraw. And it's unfortunate, particularly in the last three months of his administration, uh, uh, Jonathan Swan at Axios, I think, did a good 
uh, series of uh, uh, stories on this about how there were people, particularly General Milley and and folks in the NSC, that were trying to stop Trump from withdrawing earlier. And unfortunately, they succeeded. President Trump deserves credit for driving the Doha Agreement, which created the pathway for, for withdrawal, along with he appointing Ambassador Kalizad. I think he was the right person to do that. And yes, President Biden deserves credit for following through with the withdrawal. Now, in regards to the execution of the final phase of withdrawal, the, the last 20 days, um, I think it, it just like it's disingenuous to focus you know, on the last 20 days as the only problem with the war, I, I don't think you can honestly say that the, the pullout went well. It did not. And my the thing that I always say, though, is that the people that were responsible for planning that last phase of withdrawal were also responsible for planning large portions of the entire war. Like, mm. let's take General Milley, for example. General Milley served at almost every level of the war in Afghanistan as a brigade commander, as a deputy uh, commander of all American forces in Afghanistan, and then as chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, responsible for giving advice to the president uh, on Afghanistan, and then also, too, being responsible for a planning capability that helps ensure things like an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan are properly planned and executed. Again, this this is a guy that is clearly documented to have lied about the Afghan war and, and things like the Afghanistan papers. And had been one of the many military officers that misrepresented how well the war was going, particularly when it came to training Afghan forces. He said, oh, they're doing great when they when all the evidence showed that they weren't. And he's also somebody in the Trump administration that stopped President Trump from withdrawing earlier. I know you've had a couple guests on the show talk about this, but I believe that had President Trump been able to withdraw uh, in January of 2021, during the winter months, mm -hmm. when many Taliban fighters were uh, not with their units, uh, were at home resting, uh, and when they controlled less territory, our withdrawal may have been less chaotic. So mm -hmm. they delayed it. And so I think that it's important to remember that a lot of the people ultimately responsible for executing the the debacle that occurred at uh, the the uh Kabul airport were also involved in uh planning executing large parts of the entire war. And so that comes back to again the problem of a lack of accountability. When you don't hold these people accountable, they're going to keep making the same mistakes over and over again mm -hmm. and it's going to keep costing American lives. And so do you think that the withdrawal is the failure in the withdrawal rather was intentional or was it pure incompetence? So I won't go as far as to say that it was intentional. I think it was mostly incompetence. I will say this though. Um I think that my, you know, my former colleague Will Ruger talked about this in his episode uh around the time of the withdrawal. I I think that there were a lot of um military officers and a lot of people in the State Department that thought that they could trick Biden or pressure him into not executing the withdrawal. Mm. But when Biden, to his credit, doubled down and said, no, we're getting out, I think that caught him off guard. And so yeah. I think that they were less prepared and less their plans that they had in place weren't as seriously thought out because they just assumed that Biden was going to cave and leave a couple thousand troops in Afghanistan for the entirety of his of his term. You know, I think that's a that's a great point. 
Um, I I I want to talk a little bit about this. You know, being for uh, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, um, and 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 some of the things that. You know, we talk about horseshoe theory, right? That people yeah. at kind of both ends of the political spectrum yeah. can find some things that they agree on. Um, I think foreign policy is probably one of those things. We've mm-hmm. seen the rise of of uh, organizations like uh, the Quincy Institute, as an example. Right. Uh, you have some left-leaning, some right-leaning experts mm-hmm. coming together to, to do some scholarship on the issue of foreign policy and of kind of a restrained um, mindset. But specifically, as it relates to some of these wars in the Middle East, as it relates to this situation in Russia and Ukraine, which we're going to get to uh, in a minute, how can conservatives be reframing um, some of these positions? Um, I like I think you and I would both agree right. with the fact that uh, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan uh, was a good thing. Mm-hmm. The execution was was poor. But how do conservatives reframe those issues as we head into 2024 and and 2025 really when when conservatives are expected to return uh to majority in congress this is a good question uh and you can almost do an entire episode on it um Mm -hmm. so you know one thing that i would first off say to um conservative uh policymakers and Republicans that may or may not be considering running for higher office in 2024 is, is that um, the Republican base is not where a lot of people here in D.C. think they are on foreign policy. Mm. I think people across the spectrum of the right, not just the new rights, the national conservatives, but also the more libertarian right, more traditional conservatives and even more moderates within the Republican Party. Across the spectrum, there is increased wariness of an interventionist foreign policy. And the perception for a long time was that political hawkishness was the default politically safe position with political benefits. Now, I will acknowledge that at times like these, where you have um, a major war going on in Europe, and and there's a lot of images coming out of that are disturbing that you might see the polls fluctuate. But you heard kind of the same thing uh, in 2014 that like, oh, you know, ISIS marching across Iraq means that, you know, the Rand Paul uh, foreign policy is dead. You know, mm. we're going to have a neoconservative nominee in 2016. Well, guess what happened? You had Donald Trump winning. Uh, railing against endless wars, calling Hillary Clinton a warmonger. And there's actual academic research uh, that demonstrates that Donald Trump's more restrained, or at least the perception of a more restrained foreign policy, was critical to his victory. And so I that's I, I, I think that policy is important, but let's be honest, is that politicians at the end of the day respond most to political incentives. And, and I think it's important for candidates to understand is that the political incentives are closer to realism restraint as opposed to neoconservatism. Now, in, in regards to kind of the lar- larger question about policy and, and framing the debate, I mean, one thing that I've been saying to conservatives is I, I don't think you can have this, uh, you know, belief about foreign policy that somehow you can separate it from domestic policy. Foreign policy and domestic policy are connected. Our foreign policy 
impacts our domestic policy. And I also don't think that you can oppose social engineering at home and support it abroad, meaning mm. that I don't think you can oppose things like, you know, opposing like our, our school system, for example, imposing a set of values on school children and then support that in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. If you don't support gender studies here in the United States, if you if, if you don't think the United, you know, the, the public should be funding that at public universities, how can you support um, young men and women going to places like Afghanistan, losing life and limb to ensure that Kabul University has a gender studies program? That just yeah. doesn't make sense. And so I, I think that conservatism is a ideology of limits. And I think that we need to recognize we live in a world of limits now. Mm -hmm. We have a $30 trillion national debt. We have um, a true economic competitor in China now. Uh, you know, a, a, a foreign policy scholar I have a lot of respect for, Stephen Wertheim, um, at, uh, he's at the Carnegie Endowment now. He had a piece in Foreign Affairs and he pointed out that together, China and Russia and we've pushed them closer together because of our response to the invasion of Ukraine, they have a larger GDP than the United States. Mm. That's the world we live in now. The, the unipolar moment is over. So if we want to be serious, if conservatives want to be serious, they have to recognize those realities in those limits. And if they don't adapt to that, then it's going to hurt them politically. But worse, it's going to hurt the United States, make us less safe and less prosperous. Yeah, I, I, you said something very interesting there that I want to pick up on. Um, this idea that uh, President Trump uh, appeared to be a, a restrainer. Um, we had uh, the pleasure of uh, last Friday, we do this thing called AM Fridays at yeah. America Moment. Um, and basically, it's an intern training for, for interns that are, that are on yeah. the Hill. We feed them lunch and we bring in people. Uh, experts such as yourself to come in and 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 lecture. Um, and uh, last week we had John Allen Gay from the John Quincy right. Adams Society, who I'm sure that you know. And he was talking about um, kind of the difference between these hawkish non-interventionists, of which you know I would probably put Trump in that camp, uh, and restrainers, people kind of on on the opposite side who 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 don't want to get into really any wars. Can you? define those two terms for us and talk about maybe some, some yeah. people on the right currently who fit in both those categories? Yeah. You know, well, first of all, I want to say it's it's very nice if you call me an expert. I, I consider myself still a Marine grunt that's read a few books. Um, <laughs> John Allen Gay is an expert and one of the, the smartest foreign policy people I know. Um, so, you know, Trump, I want to talk about Trump just Real quick, I think that President Trump had a lot of restraint instincts, and I'm sure that some of my friends are going to hear this and their heads are going to explode because they this is a this is a very heated debate among the realist and restraint movement, even on the realist and restraint right. Um, if you listen to him and you look at what he tweeted and said, this is somebody who I I think was uncomfortable with um actually falling through and executing, uh, you know, a war, um, even if his rhetoric at times was belligerent. Um, this is somebody who believed in deals. This is somebody mm -hmm. who um, was 
oftentimes the only voice in his administration that didn't want to do something uh, like, you know, bomb Iran or, um, you know, stay in Syria or not withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, it, he was imperfect. And I think the bigger issue with him was, <clears throat> and this is why I think groups like American Moments and others are so important was, is that he didn't have people around him that shared those instincts or shared those beliefs. And they basically just wore him down and outmaneuver him. And in some cases lied to his face. Mm. Uh, Jim Jeffrey, who was, uh, I forget his exact title, but he was basically in charge of Syria policy for the Trump administration. Uh, he was an open never Trumper. He signed one of those never Trump uh, letters. And once he left the administration, he went on a media tour bragging about how he lied to the president about our presence in Syria to, in, in essence, trick him into staying in Syria. How is that like not treason? <laughs> you use that word, not me. Yeah. Um how you think it's okay to brag about that and to have the reporters that you brag about it to not push back on it is just mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, general Milley, uh, again, I, I, I really encourage people to read that, the Jonathan Swan piece that I mentioned, um, I think it's called off the rails, uh, I mean, General Milley, there's real evidence that he was um, telling the Afghan government that, hey, I'm trying to slow down the withdrawal. Hang on. Like, you know, Trump's not going to fall through with this. I mean, mm. that is really out of bounds for a military officer, but also, too, for a civilian appointee. So um, I think that's just an important thing I, I want to clarify. But kind of back to your 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 question about how you kind of classify certain people. For me, like kind of labels and stuff is always kind of fraught territory. Like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to describe my political beliefs is one of the most difficult things in the world for me right now because certain words have different meaning to people. Um, in regards to kind of foreign policy and where people fall, you know, I think that going into 2024, you're going to have a very crowded neoconservative interventionist lane. You're going to have a lot of people that uh, think that, um, you know, the political advantage is still in the Republican Party towards intervention. So you're going to have a lot of people like, you know, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, probably um, former Vice President Pence that are all going to be pretty much singing off the same hymnal when it comes to foreign policy. So that leaves an opening for other candidates to to fill a different lane and go a different path on that and in terms of who fills that um i honestly don't know uh, i think there are potential candidates I, I don't really want to speculate on on who or what that may be but let's just you know use uh senator josh hawley for example he's somebody who i think has taken a different path on foreign policy than than others um I think there's areas where he could do better, but he's at least been open-minded to recognizing the reality of the world that we live in, mainly that we live in a world of limits now, and we need to prioritize and do things differently. Uh, I, I disagree with Senator Hawley on some domestic stuff, but uh, I think he he's somebody that is taking a different path than some of the other names I mentioned. Yeah, well, I want to make it a little easier on you. Uh, we can talk about people who are dead uh, so, ah. that, so that they don't... Uh, you know, have any have any mean things to say or, or, or tweet about you after the fact. I think 
one of the places where this um, dichotomy is most present is comparing some of this restrained foreign policy today to a different kind of the old new right yeah and a, a different kind of foreign policy so uh that means i want to talk about tr Uh-oh. who is right here he's always on the set um so you know you mentioned the new right i think everybody hates that term i don't think anybody likes it but but we'll just call it our faction of the right uh uh for now um you know there's this huge reverence i you know myself included i'm not naming mm-hmm. any names uh uh that really reveres tr his legacy mm-hmm. um a lot of his domestic policy um you know some people maybe disavow the more progressive era right. um but one of the things that's notable as people look back to and by the way like holly wrote a a, a book right. on tr and his political philosophy which i'd highly recommend it's actually it's a fantastic book <laughs> um but I think there's this huge reverence for him, but I, I I think that some people have some well-meaning concern that that a mm-hmm. reverence for his foreign policy views, his mm-hmm. uh, jingoism, his right. um, you know, basically foreign imperialism, that that would yeah. be a bad thing for today's right. So now that we're talking about someone who can't hurt you, uh. <laughs> kind of compare and contrast i guess those two views and and which way the right should be looking forward by the way i i've come to appreciate uh getting attacked on twitter especially by like uh resistance uh um blue wave people that want to start world war three yeah those are my favorite folks like people that have like pictures of kamala harris as their avatars and then ukrainian flags but are also demanding a no-fly zone and us to directly attack Russia. Yeah, they're all I'm, enlisted, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a you know a lot of keyboard warriors that are want to fight this war to last Ukrainian, but I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. So I, I'm somebody that admittedly is, is not a fan of either TR's domestic or foreign policy. I think as an as a individual, there's a lot to admire about him. You know, led a very interesting life. Obviously, somebody very, you know, individually brave and, and rugged. Um, but, you know, talking about his foreign policy, he was part of a group of individuals, you know, in the late 19th century, early 20th century that really represented a true break from what had been the dominant American foreign policy, you know, not not perfectly, but that that had been set in place by our founding fathers. Mm-hmm. And I think that the foreign policy realism restraint has a foundation in what um, our founding fathers wanted for the United States. You know, George Washington, I encourage everybody to read his farewell address, especially Mm. with what's going on in Ukraine. He warned against entangling alliances. He warned against passionate attachments to other nations. He framed it not just as bad for, for the United States, but those other nations as well. And he also warned against getting too involved in European affairs. And you had others like John Quincy Adams that, that, mm-hmm. that similarly advanced a, a, a similar foreign policy. And um, I think that that, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and others in his era, they represented a break with that and kind of mm-hmm. began to set us on a different path. And it would ebb and flow. You know, after World War One, there was um, you saw kind of this um, 
wariness of being interventionists abroad come back to American politics in both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. Then World War II happened, um, and and that kind of set us on the path that we are on today. Mm-hmm. Um, so X kind of goes back to what I talked to earlier, is that if you're trying to define conservatism or even, and I, I you know, we, we've, we've hit on like kind of the, the problem with labels. I don't want to conflate libertarianism and conservatism because that would, you know, set off a huge debate in the comments section on this, uh, on this podcast. Yeah. But, you uh, think your mentions are bad yes, now. Just yeah. wait. Yeah. But I, again, it goes back to me is, is I don't think you can be, you can call yourself a conservative if you support like more, um, you know, uh, well, li- limits here at home on on things like again, like government or on like uh, uh, certain cultural things, and then support a interventionist or even outright imperialist foreign policy abroad. It just mm. it won't work. At the end of the day, um, it, it will blow back on you at home in, in various ways. Whether it's through a security state that is eventually weaponized against people on the right, like frankly we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a direct line between the security state that emerged um, after 9-11 and what we've seen, like with the the Whitmer FBI kidnapping plot falling mm. apart. That's that's an example of how an interventionist foreign policy abroad creates problems here at home. And look, he, he uh, would disagree with us on a lot of stuff, and I don't agree with a lot of, of his conclusions, but Spencer Ackerman more left-wing reporter used to write for Daily Beast has his own Substack now wrote a book about this called Reign of Terror where he maps this out how the war on terror basically came home mm. and that impacts all of us um not just people on the left or certain you know groups of people it also will blow back on conservatives as well too yeah i'll have to pick up that book and uh tell Jake to add it to Amcanon um so we've got the the theory. Now let's put it into practice. Right. What I'm sure everyone has been waiting for when they saw Dan Caldwell was coming on the show, Russia, Ukraine. Let's uh, let's talk about it. So can you give kind of a 30,000 foot view of the realist perspective um, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and why, uh, you know, America's defense of Ukraine is not in our national interest? Yeah, i I'd start off by saying like there's not one unified realist perspective. I think you know that. Mm. Um, I, I would say that you know my perspective is is that, uh, you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine is immoral. It's it's not something that in any way uh, is the right thing to do, nor is it justified. But that doesn't mean that. Um, we should not look at how we got to this point. And I think that for me, the starting point is, is that it is not in the United States interest to get directly involved in this war. And also I would go further and say, it's not in the Ukrainian people's interest for the United States to get directly involved mm. with combat troops by imposing a no fly zone or sending certain weapon systems over there. Because only at the end of the day, that will mean a massive escalation of the war and the people are going to pay the price in that first and foremost are the people of Ukraine. But I think that you need to start going back to that conversation around limits is that we now have 
serious challenges at home economically and new challenges abroad, particularly in Asia. And so we need to prioritize. And at the end of the day, there are not significant vital national interests at stake in Ukraine that warrant this being primarily an American security problem. This mm-hmm. is a European security challenge, and we need to be pushing them to take the lead on it. And you know, simply, it is just not in our interests to be leading uh, and ultimately making ourselves responsible for the security of Ukraine. So you brought up fly zones a minute ago. Um, tell us more about that. How, oh, yeah. how how does a fly zone? You saw a lot of people like I think right. like Nancy Mace was calling for uh you know or there are a lot of members of Congress I, that were calling for for no fly zones. I actually but. think uh, Representative Mace wrote a very good article before uh I believe the a couple days before the war began. But I I, I think you maybe are getting her mixed up with um. Oh, is it Lindsey Graham? Well, Lindsey Graham, yeah, no, think, another representative yeah. from uh, South Carolina. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, re- regardless, there's been a lot of um, members. There are too many of them. To count. Too many of them. And name. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think uh, a lot of people think a no fly zone is just flying jets over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. A no fly zone involves a number of different things. It implies uh, armed American fighters and NATO fighters, fighter jets. Uh, patrolling uh, Ukraine and probably shooting down Russian jets because the Russian Air Force, they don't have complete air superiority, but they have close to it. But it also means bombing Russian air defense sites in Ukraine, but also in Russia because their air defense systems can be in Russia and still provide coverage over uh, large parts of Ukraine. And you have to do that because they pose a threat to American or NATO fighter jets. So you're dropping bombs on Russia at that point. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I need to explain where that can lead. Yeah. Um, it it will escalate. It would probably lead to Russia retaliating, them bombing American air bases, and then we start bombing Russian ballistic missile sites and Russian air bases. And at some point, uh, it's very likely that Somebody pops off a nuke and then I, again, we know where it goes from there. Um, It is an incredibly dangerous uh, policy proposal. It is one that um, will not end the war quicker. It will lead it to it escalating and a lot more bloodshed. Mm -hmm. I want to say that I understand, though, why the Ukrainian government's demanding this. I think Zelensky knows that he's unlikely to get a no-fly zone, but he's using that suggestion and that push to create pressure and space for things just short of that, like more sophisticated weaponry, mm-hmm. um, more uh, uh, financial support, potentially advisors in the western part of the country. Um, he he is he is. Uh, using a lot of these things and and using kind of these guilt trips, I think very effectively, honestly, Mm -hmm. uh, to get more stuff out of the West and and NATO specifically. Yeah. And, and on NATO, you know, as kind of a final question before we wrap up, uh, I was seeing some news earlier today about, um, I think Sweden is moving in the next couple of weeks to, uh, apply for membership to NATO. And I think, uh, Finland announced that they were going to have 
some kind of referendum in the in the in the coming weeks about joining. Um, you've brought up that that you know a lot of these security concerns in Europe are Europe's problem. How are you thinking about NATO? About some of these other countries who have long resisted joining NATO now joining NATO due to Russian aggression. Um, how should conservatives be thinking about that? So I think this is how conservatives should think about it, is that if Finland and Sweden join NATO, that means extending security commitments to two wealthy European welfare states who now will be able to free ride under the American security umbrella. Mm. I've heard a lot of talk about how Finland and Sweden have capable militaries and there'll be a value add to NATO, but Nobody can argue with a straight face that Finland and Sweden and NATO is going to enhance American security. Mm. I I don't believe for a minute that it will. Um, If the European Union, which Sweden and Finland are a part of, want to form their own collective security organization outside of NATO that doesn't involve um, an American security commitment, that in some ways makes sense. But, But we have to look at it through... What is in America's best interest? And again, I see no valid argument that adding two countries thousands of miles away, one of which shares a thousand mile border with Russia, is going to make us safer here in the United States of America, or it's going to make us deal with the challenges that we have that are emerging in, in Asia. It's 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 absurd. Um, look, uh, NATO in, in a lot of ways is a holy sacrament here in Washington, D.C., mm. I want to be clear, NATO in the Cold War made sense. It was the right thing to do to, to um, form that alliance. The, there was a real threat posed by Soviet expansionism, and that needed to be checked. But in the post-Cold War era, NATO has kind of just been expanding, I would say, almost aimlessly. NATO in and of itself, just it existing seems to be an outcome. And Mm -hmm. nobody's been able to really articulate, I think, effectively how this European security alliance makes sense in a post-Soviet world. Because, look, Russia is not the Soviet Union. It is not the same challenge posed by the Soviet Union. Moscow is not the capital of an international communist movement. Really, in some ways, an international communist empire. Europe collectively has 10 times the GDP of Russia. Mm-hmm. You have Britain and France uh, as nuclear armed states. Their performance in, in Ukraine has shown that they can't march on Warsaw. They can't march on Budapest, much less Berlin or Paris. So I think now it's time for the Europeans to step up and take responsibility for security on their own continent without the United States playing a central role. Mm. I couldn't agree more. Um, Dan, where can people find you? Keep up sure. with uh, all the important work that you're doing. So you can go to uh, www.standtogether.org, which is the primary organization I work for. I also am an advisor to a great veterans grassroots organization called Concerned Veterans for America. You can go to www.cv4a.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Concerned Vets, at Stand Together. Um, you can also follow me at Twitter at Dan D. Caldwell. You just have to uh, occasionally put up with random musings about 80s thrash metal. Um, <laughs> but uh, those are the best ways to stay in touch with us. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it and uh, best of luck. Thank you. 
Wow, what a great episode. Um, one of the greatest things about Dan, you know, aside from the fact that he is uh, one of our most loyal listeners, um, is that he has the bravery to stand up to uh, the foreign policy consensus here in Washington. Uh, there's no one uh, who is more unfairly uh, maligned in the media, uh, in foreign policy circles um, than, than Dan, um, especially as it has related to, to some of this Russia and Ukraine stuff. Um, Dan is a patriot. He loves America. He loves this country. Um, he went to Iraq to, to serve it. Um, and everything that he's doing now is, is, you know, in defense of, of us, our citizens, um, and our national interest. Um, so we're very grateful to Dan, uh, both for listening to the show, being a big fan and for coming on. Um, thank you also for listening to this show. You know, we have thousands of people that listen to this show every week, uh, kind of blows me away, uh, as a guy who never used to listen to podcasts and now I host one. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a crazy world, but thank you for listening. Um, we ask that if you haven't already, that you'll rate and review, uh, the podcast, uh, that you would give us five stars and, and tell us all the great things that you like about it. If you ask an interesting question in the reviews, uh, um, I will look at it and maybe we'll talk about it on the air, uh, if it's interesting enough. Um, we also, you know, if you are moving to DC, if you're an intern here, if you just started, uh, listening to the show, um, and you want to meet with one of us to find out how you can get plugged in, you can go to AmericanMoment.org slash join, um, and fill out that contact form. Those all go right to me. And then I usually put meetings on Sarab's, uh, already overbooked calendar, uh, for, for him or uh, Emma, our coalitions manager, to meet with you. We'd love for you, if you listen to the show, to be able to get uh, plugged into our network. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.